Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. In this week's episode, we join the Doctor as he returns to Gallifrey in The Deadly Assassin. We're discussing the Doctor. No companions, really, this week, but we will have some prominent characters and the mm-hmm. villains and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravelingteamp at teamproductions.com. Uh, first, though, um, a sad note that on the mm. day of recording, uh, Bernard Cribbins passed away. Uh, Bernard Cribbins, who we had previously discussed from Dalek Invasion of Earth 2150 AD. Um, Stupid title, he was great. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to be discussing in a lot more pr- prominence in the Tent Doctor era. Uh, but outside of that, they, we have memories of Bernard uh, from things like the Carry On movies, Faulty Towers, just a, like a lot of other like, great British television shows and movies for the last it's like 50, 60 odd years. Mm. I would say one thing. I actually recently saw Doctor Who and the Daleks and then Dalek Invasion Earth 2150 AD in the cinema uh, for the 4K release mm-hmm. and this is only like two or three weeks ago and i couldn't remember what we had discussed when we did our rambling on that film but bernard was so good in that no we, we were so big fans we were big fans of bernard's role in that movie mm. uh the movie itself i think we you know we weren't mean to it but i don't think we were like overly complimentary mm. towards it either but no we um, really did enjoy his role in it yeah, and the other thing is that a couple of years ago, I actually had the honour of meeting Bernard um, at London Film and Comic Con 2019, I want to say. Um, I didn't have a chance to get a photo op with him, but I did manage to get his autograph, and he was absolutely lovely. He was a lovely man, and I think the whole of the Doctor Who family is, uh, is quite sad today. It is quite sad. So I've done my my part and I posted uh, the best bits from his appearance on Nevermind the Buzzcocks <laughs> into link to a fan page, uh, which uh, if anyone could find the episode, it was a Christmas special from back in around 2009, 2010. Uh, he's amazing in it. Uh, but now on to the story recap. Part one. Through the millennia, the Time Lords of Gallifrey led a life of peace and ordered calm protected from all threats from lesser civilizations by their great power. But this was the change. Suddenly and terribly, the Time Lords faced the most dangerous crisis in their long history. In the TARDIS, the Doctor gets a prophetic vision of a gathering of Time Lords in the Panopticon, the Grand Assembly Hall in the Citadel of the Time Lords. The vision then shows him in a balcony holding a rifle, which he uses to assassinate the Lord President. The vision then ends and he slumps to the floor in horror. Meanwhile, the TARDIS lands at the Time Lord Citadel, and a squad of Chancery guards are dispatched to investigate. They are joined by Castellan Spandrel and Commander Hildred, who says that it looks like an old Type 40 TARDIS, which are now obsolete. Spandrel says that he wants the occupants arrested, but they will postpone the interrogation until tomorrow, after the President's resignation day has passed. Spandrel then goes to the Records Department and investigates the origin of the TARDIS. He discovers that it has been registered as a criminal asset, and he warns Hildred to take precautions. Meanwhile, the doctor, after overhearing that it is the resignation day, says he needs to warn the president. However, he sees Hildred and his men preparing to enter the TARDIS after obtaining an override key. 
He writes a note and then places it on a dummy wearing his clothes and smoking a hookah pipe. The guards enter the console room and fall for the ruse, allowing the doctor to escape. He makes his way to a lift, but is apprehended by a guard exiting it. However, the guard is shot in the back by a cloaked figure who flees before the doctor can ask them anything. He then sends the lift up and takes cover when he hears more guards approaching. They find the body, and Hildred then sends an alarm to the Citadel. In the records department, Coordinator Engen gives Spandrel the history of the Doctor's banishment to Earth and subsequent forgiveness due to his missions that he undertook for the Celestial Intervention Agency. Hildred then arrives and reports what happened, leading Spandrel to berate him for his ineptitude. Hildred then shows him the note which warns of the threat to the President. Spandrel notes that it is marked with the seal of the Pridonian chapter, a noble sect of the Time Lord Society. Engen then finds more records on the Doctor and says that he was a member of the chapter and Spendrel says that he needs to report this to the Chancellor. Meanwhile, the Doctor heads back to the TARDIS, unaware that he is being observed by the cloaked figure. In his chambers, Chancellor Gott reads the note delivered by Spendrel, who says that the Doctor poses a threat due to his status as a renegade and that he has already killed the guard. Gott, who is himself a Pridonian, is curious as to why the Doctor would give forewarning if he was a threat. However, he agrees to redeploy guards in the resignation ceremony to help with the search. They then go to take a look at the TARDIS. In the TARDIS, the Doctor tunes into a local telecast showing members of the various Time Lord chapters entering the Panopticon for the resignation ceremony. The newscaster, Runcible, goes to speak with Cardinal Barusa, who is the head of the Pridonian chapter, to see if he can get any clues to who will be the new Lord President. However, Barusa, remembering Runcible as a mediocre student when he was at the Academy, brushes him off and leaves him with the other Cardinals. Runcible goes back to his newscast and says God is the heavy favourite to take the new position. The Doctor turns off the newscast and turns on the external view screen, where he sees Gott and Spandrel approaching the TARDIS. Spandrel suggests that the Doctor could have an accomplice that could be trying to sabotage the security barriers around the Citadel. Gott says that he is being paranoid, but orders the TARDIS to be transferred to a secure location. The TARDIS is sent to an old museum, and the Doctor gets out to make his way to the Panopticon, but stops when he sees a display of ceremonial Time Lord clothing. Elsewhere, the cloaked figure goes to a secret chamber and reports to the Doctor's movements to another cloaked figure. This figure, who looks like a rotting corpse, says the Doctor knows that he is walking into a trap, but cannot resist the bait of trying to stop the assassination. He then tells the cloaked figure to make sure the Doctor dies. Hildred reports to Spandrel that they haven't been able to find the Doctor, and suggests that he may have doubled back to the TARDIS. They go to the museum and find his clothes in place of the ceremonial robes. Spandrel realises that the Doctor will now have full access to the Panopticon, and he orders Hildred to find him, but to be discreet. Spandrel then goes to Engen to take a look at the Doctor's history, and he discovers that someone had recently taken it out of the archives. He tells Engen that they would have to look to see who took it out later, but for the time being, they should go through the history. At the Panopticon, the cloaked figure kills a cameraman in the balcony, and then assembles a sniper rifle. He then watches as the Doctor makes his way through the crowd. The Doctor starts talking to Runcible, so he doesn't get noticed by the guards. Runcible distractedly says that he can't contact his cameraman in the balcony, and the Doctor looks up, seeing the barrel of the rifle. He pushes his way through the throng of Time Lords and heads up to the balcony. The president then appears and makes his way into the Panopticon. The Doctor notices someone in the crowd take out a blaster and takes up the rifle and shoots at the assailant, but to no avail as the president is still shot. Part 2. The assembled Time Lords rush to check on the president. Up in the balcony, the Doctor, knowing that he is in danger, attempts to flee but is captured by Hildred and his men. He is then brought down into the Panopticon, where Spandrel tells everyone that he is the assassin. He is then taken away for questioning, but Gott tells Spandrel that his trial must commence immediately. Barusa objects, saying that this is against their judicial code, but Gott says that the president never named his successor, and that they need to do so as soon as possible. 
He explains that the trials need to be completed so as not to distract the Time Lord's attention from the task of electing the new Lord President. In the detention area, the Doctor is being interrogated by Hildred for information, but he resists him, prompting Hildred to increase the intensity of the torture. Spangler arrives and tells him to stop and apologises to the Doctor, who recognises the good cop, bad cop technique. Spangler informs him of Goth's order for his trial to commence and asks the Doctor to tell him anything that might help him. Doctor says that he never met the President and therefore had no reason to kill him. Spangler confirms the first part of this by saying that he read the Doctor's file and the Doctor says that someone is attempting to frame him for the murder. Spangler asks how he knew about the assassination and the Doctor explains his vision to him. Spangler then leaves and shows a recording of the Doctor's statement to Engen. Engen says that psychic premonitions are impossible but Spandrel says that he is starting to believe the Doctor and that someone else is responsible for the assassination. He then asks if Engen was able to see who else took out the Doctor's file from the records, but Engen replies that no one did. He explains that files can only be taken out with the use of custom keycards and that his was the only one that accessed the Doctor's file. Spandrel asks who else has those keycards and Engen says that only High Counselors are granted those keys. Spandrel then asks if the access records can be deleted and Engen says it would take a proficient computer expert to do so, prompting Spandrel to say that there can't be too many High Counselors with such skills. Meanwhile, Barusa again appeals to the Goth to not make any rash decisions, but Goth says that they cannot let the President's murder go unavenged. He says that an incoming President is required to pardon political prisoners as their first act in office, which would allow the Doctor to go free. As the favourite to take over the role, he says he wants to avoid the dilemma by getting the trial over and out of the way of it first. The trial commences and various people give statements including Hildred, Runcible and a Time Lord that the Doctor barged into on his way to the balcony. The last person says he heard the Doctor say, let me go, they'll kill him. But Gott, sensing that he is hard of hearing, asks if he is sure that he didn't say, let me go, I'll kill him. The old Time Lord says that he could have been mistaken. Gott then asks if the Doctor has anything to say in his defence, at which point the Doctor invokes Article 17 of the Time Lord Constitution and nominates himself for the presidency. Gott objects to this, but the Doctor says that the law allows him to remain free until the election is passed. Gott says it doesn't apply to criminals, but Barusa says that the Doctor has yet to be pronounced guilty. Gott reluctantly agrees to let him enter the election, but orders Spandrel to make sure that he doesn't leave the Citadel. The Doctor then asks Spandrel to let him try and prove his innocence, to which the Castellan agrees. A short while later, the cloak figure reports the developments to the corpse figure and says that they shouldn't have attempted to frame the Doctor. The corpse figure replies that he needed the Doctor to be involved as he wants him to die in shame before he carries out his plan to destroy the Time Lords. He says that this is the only thing that keeps him alive through his pained existence. In his chambers, the Doctor and Spandrel examine the rifle he was found with. The Doctor asks him to try hitting a target with the rifle, but the shot goes wide despite the sight being on the intended target. The Doctor says that he tried to shoot the assassin, who he says is a member of the High Council, but failed due to the rifle's sights. Spandrel says that he needed evidence, and the Doctor says that the footage from the newscast would prove his innocence. Spandrel agrees and orders Hildred to take the Doctor to the Panopticon and to summon Runcible as well. Spandrel then goes to update Gott, who says that only he and the Doctor remain in the election race. He says that once the election is over, he would have Barusa change Article 17 to prevent this from happening again. At the Panopticon, Runcible protests his involvement in the investigation, but agrees to fetch the last reel of film from the balcony camera. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Spandrel and Hildred go to search for any sign of the Doctor's errant shot. Hildred finds the marking, and Spandrel says that they were lucky to find it, as stasers, which is the weapon of choice of the Time Lords, are designed to damage tissue. They suddenly hear a scream from Runcible, and they rush up to the balcony. They find him slowly regaining consciousness, and he shows them the open end of the camera, which contains a miniature person that he says was his cameraman. 
The doctor says that he's seen this type of thing before and tells him that the master is somehow involved. Spantrell asks Runcible if he found the footage that he was looking for, and Runcible says that he has, unaware that the actual last reels were removed by the cloaked figure. Spantrell then asks the doctor to tell him everything that he can about the master. They go to the records department to see what they can have on him, but they suddenly come across Runcible, who staggers towards them. He apologises and then falls to the ground, with a stake sticking out of his back. They carry on to the records department, where Engin tells him that there is no file on the master. The doctor says it would be easy for him to remove any trace of himself or his accessing of the records from the system. He then notices a piece of machinery that Engen says is an APC, Amplified Pentronic Computations Machine. He explains it is the repository of knowledge of the deceased Time Lords that they use to predict future events. The doctor realizes that the master took an imprint of his brain pattern from his file and sent the prediction of the assassination to him to draw him to the Citadel. Engen says that such a feat would be impossible, but the Doctor says that it wouldn't be if the Master joined his own brain to the APC's matrix. The Doctor says that he will do the same to get the proof they need, but Engen says that psychosomatic feedback would kill him. Spangel agrees to let the Doctor try, and Engen reluctantly hooks him up to the machine. The Doctor wakes up in a fabricated reality within the matrix that is reminiscent of the surface of Scarrow. He nearly tumbles on a cliff face, but manages to save himself by whipping his scarf around the tree branch. However, a man wearing feudal samurai armour appears and then cuts the branch, sending the Doctor tumbling down the cliff face. Out in the real world, Engen and Spandrel watches the Doctor's brain activity suddenly stops before coming back online again. In the Matrix, the Doctor wakes up on an operating table at the base of the cliff and watches as a man wearing surgical scrubs approaches him with a large syringe. The Doctor gets off the table and falls into a battlefield reminiscent of World War I before finding himself standing on a train track. He sees three locomotives, each with a mass driver, at one end of the track. Suddenly the track closes on his leg, and he cries out in agony as he tries to get it free as one of the locomotives comes bearing down on him. Part 3. The doctor pulls in vain to get his leg free, but it is no use, and he dives back as the train approaches. However, it vanishes from sight and the track opens, freeing the doctor's leg. He gets up and moves away from the track and finds himself in an abandoned quarry. Realising that he is in an illusion, he tries to focus and manages to see past the illusion for a few seconds, seeing the inner workings of the Matrix. However, the illusion reasserts itself and a pair of eyes appear on the quarry wall, telling the Doctor that there is no escape for him. The eyes vanish and the Doctor hears the sound of running water from nearby. He finds a patch of sand where the sound is coming from, but when he moves the sand out of the way, he is greeted by the sight of a mirror with a clown in it, laughing at him. He moves on and enters a wooded area. He suddenly sees a biplane in the distance approaching him, and he runs for cover as it starts shooting at him. He manages to avoid the gunfire, but the plane circles around for another run, and the Doctor dives for cover. The plane flies away, and the Doctor notices that his leg is bleeding. He denies the reality of the wound, and watches as it fades from sight. The voice appears again, and says that in this reality he makes the rules, and the wound reappears. Realising that he cannot keep being on the defensive, the Doctor defiantly says that he will fight back. Outside in the real world, Spandrel and Engen continue to monitor the Doctor's vital signs. Engen says that the reader is consistent with a biological fight or flight response, and he realises that someone else must be in the Matrix with the Doctor. Elsewhere, the cloaked figure is in an ad hoc interface that is remotely connected to the Matrix. The corpse figure watches the events through the view screen and warns his underling to be wary of the Doctor, seeing that he is still dangerous. In the Matrix, the cloaked figure has taken on the appearance of a masked hunter and begins to track down the Doctor. He spots him in the distance and shoots at him with a hunting rifle but misses. The Doctor flees the area and the hunter pursues him. The hunter stops to take a drink and consult a map. 
he realizes the doctor will need water and takes off in the direction of a watering hole, leaving his backpack behind. Once he is gone, the doctor crawls over to it and goes through it for supplies, taking out a hand grenade and some tape to rig up a booby trap. Meanwhile, at the watering hole, the hunter poisons it and then continues in his pursuit of the doctor. The hunter returns to the backpack and triggers the booby trap, but the doctor knows that he survived as the illusion persists. Outside, the corpse figure berates the hunter for his foolishness and then turns to a nearby guard that is in a hypnotized state. He gives the guard a secret instruction and tells him to let no one stand in his way. In the Matrix, the doctor arrives at the watering hole but stops just before he drinks as he notices the discarded poison bottle. He takes a piece of nearby reed and uses it to drink up some droplets of uncontaminated water near the edge. He then leaves as he hears someone approaching and a few moments later the wounded hunter arrives and investigates the watering hole. He calls out to the doctor saying that he is getting near and that he had better run. The doctor stumbles into a thorn patch and getting an idea climbs a nearby tree after snapping off one of the thorns. He dips the thorn into the poison bottle and places it into a reed using it as a rudimentary blowpipe. He waits for the hunter to enter the thorn patch and then shoots him in the leg with the poison thorn. The hunter fires back at the doctor, wounding him in the arm and causing him to fall out of the tree. The doctor gets up and staggers away whilst the hunter administers an antidote to his leg. Out in the real world, the hypnotized guard arrives and tells Spandrel that God wants the doctor brought to his office. Spandrel says that he can take him away after he comes out of the Matrix. Engin says that they may need to get him out soon as the strain is taking its toll on the doctor's body. Engin says the doctor is probably at a disadvantage as his opponent has probably been in the Matrix many times and is therefore able to last longer. He then notices the guard edging towards a button near the control panel and tells him to keep back. The guard tries to press it again, but Spandrel shoves him back and is then forced to shoot him when he lunges for it. Elsewhere, the corpse figure, who now reveals himself to be the master, urges the hunter to kill the doctor. In the Matrix, the hunter chases the doctor into a swamp and tells him to give up as he can't win. The doctor demands to know who he is and the hunter rips off his mask, revealing himself to be Goth. The doctor says that he will come out of hiding and presents himself as a target for Goth. Got shoots at him, but in doing so, ignites the swamp gas swirling in the air, which the doctor had earlier noticed. Got is engulfed in flames and falls into the swamp. The doctor goes to check on him, but Got suddenly springs up and the two start to fist fight. Got eventually gets the upper hand and then starts to drown the doctor. Part 4 The pain from Got's wounds causes him to stop drowning the doctor, allowing him to get back up and knock him out with a stick. In the real world, the master pulls Got out of the Matrix and berates him for his failure. He says the only way that they can see it is to trap the Doctor in the Matrix. God says that he is still attached to the Matrix and could die as well, but the Master presses on. In the records room, the APC starts to overload due to the Master's interference and Engin goes to cut the power in order to save the brain patterns within the system. Spandrel says the Doctor is still alive and they can trade his life for those of the dead. However, the Doctor starts to come to and Engin goes to cut off the power. The doctor reveals that God was the assassin and is in league with the Master. He says they need to find where Gott was tapped into the Matrix and Engen reveals the existence of an old service tunnel that exists beneath the record room. They follow the tunnels and come to the secret room where they see Gott unconscious at the Matrix interface. They also see the Master sitting motionless on a seat where, and the Doctor checks his pulse, revealing that he is dead. Gott slurringly reveals that he did what he did so he could become the President, telling them that he found out that he was not the chosen successor for the role. The Doctor asks him what the Master's plan was, and God says that he found him on a distant planet, dying due to the fact that he was on his last regeneration. He says the Master promised to share all of his knowledge with him if he helped him, but then mentally ensnared Goth. The Doctor again presses him for information as to the Master's plan, but Goth dies.
Later, Spangler reports the events to Barusa, who says that he will need to hide some of the facts in order to save face in front of the rest of Time Lord society. He says they will reveal that Cot attempted to stop the Master's assassination of the President, and they killed each other as a result. Barusa says that all charges against the Doctor will be dropped as long as he leaves Gallifrey after helping Engin create a new record about the Master. The Doctor and Engin go to the record room, and the Doctor begins to give a brief history of the Master. He starts to grow suspicious as he says the Master would surely have had a backup plan to escape a potential final death. He asks Engin what is so important about the Presidency, and Engin explains that the President has access to the symbols of the office, which are ancient relics from Time Lord history. Meanwhile, Spandrel, under orders from Barusa, instructs Hildred to take the Master's body and alter its appearance so to make it look like he died from repeated stasor blasts. Hildred then presents a hypodermic syringe that one of his men found in the secret room, and Spandrel takes it away for analysis. In the record room, Engin plays an audio reading of a book about the earliest days of Time Lord society under its founder, Rassilon. It says how he found an artifact called the Eye of Harmony within a black hole and brought it to Gallifrey, where it was locked away with a key, which has since become one of the symbols of the Lord President. Doctor says that the Master must have been trying to find a way to access the Eye to stop his death, but as a result, he could have destroyed the entire planet. Spandrel then arrives with the syringe, and the Doctor looks at it. He realises that the substance within it is actually a neural inhibitor, and the Master is not actually dead. In the chamber holding his body, the Master wakes up and kills Hedred using his tissue decompressor, just as he was about to staser him. He searches the nearby body of the late President as it lies in state, but takes cover when he hears the Doctor and the others arrive. They see Hildred's body, and the Doctor says that the Master's greatest weakness is his blind hatred. The Master then appears and holds them all at gunpoint, and demands that Engin give him the ancient relics. The Doctor tells him not to do it, but the Master threatens him. He then prepares to shoot the Doctor, but Spandrel steps in front of the blast and falls to the floor stunned. The Master then explains that he wanted to use the Doctor as a scapegoat due to his hatred of him, and he then shoots the Doctor. Engin gives the Master the sash of Rassilon from the President's body, who then seals them inside. The Doctor and Spandrel then wake up, and the Doctor explains that the sash is actually a personal force field that protects the wearer from being sucked into the Eye of Harmony, which is the nucleus of a black hole. He says that Rassilon based all of the Time Lord's technology around it, and if the Master interferes, then he could wipe out the entire solar system. In the Panopticon, the Master removes the key from its housing, and uses it to open the chamber holding the Eye of Harmony. He then puts on the sash, and starts to activate the Eye. The Citadel starts to shake violently, and chunks of debris fall from the roof. The Doctor suddenly appears, having gained access to the Panopticon via an old service shaft that connected it to the room that he was trapped in. He says the Master will not be able to control the power of the Eye, but the Master retorts that he is safe so long as he is wearing the sash. The Doctor says that the sash is defective, as it failed to keep the President from getting shot, and he uses the Master's moment of doubt to shove him aside so he can deactivate the Eye. The Master gets up and swings a chunk of debris at the Doctor, and chases him up a flight of stairs. The Doctor manages to knock him down the steps and rushes back to finish off deactivating the eye. The floor of the Panopticon then suddenly splits open and the Master falls into the crack, screaming as he does so. The Doctor manages to finish deactivating the eye and the shaking stops. Later, he, Spandrel and Engin go to Bruce's office, who tells him that half the citadels and ruins and countless lives were lost, saying that it is the worst disaster in the history of Gallifrey. He asks how they will explain the events and the Doctor suggests adjusting the truth again. Barusa chides him, saying that his flippant attitude has, hasn't changed since he was his student, and that he will not amount to anything if he keeps it up. The Doctor then asks to leave, and Barusa agrees, but grades his performance in saving the Citadel as a 9 out of 10. Spandrel and Engin escort the Doctor to the TARDIS, and they discuss the fate of the Master. The Doctor says that he could have survived, as the energy being emitted from the eye could have been enough to give the sash some power.
He then bids goodbye to the two of them and the TARDIS takes off. Spandrel then turns and sees as the Master entering an old grandfather clock in an alcove and watches as it dematerializes. He tells Engin that the universe isn't big enough for both the Doctor and the Master and that they will one day fight again. End of the story. Very good, very good. Thank you. So, we now enter the much-awaited trivia spot. So, what have you got for us this week, Trish? Cool. So, the air date for the Deadly Assassin is the 30th of October to the 20th of November, 1976. The writer for the story is Robert Holmes. This is story 10 of 18 for Robert. We previously saw his work in... The Crotons, the Space Pirates, Spearhead from Space, Terror of the Autons, Carnival of Monsters, The Time War, The Ark in Space, Pyramids of Mars, and The Brain of Morgus. And we'll see his work again in... The Talents of Wang Chien, The Sunmakers, The Ribus Operation, The Power of Crawl, The Caves Around Johnson, The Two Doctors, The Mysterious Planet, and The Ultimate Foe. Director for the story is David Malloy. This is story eight-ish of nine-ish for David. We previously saw his work in The Mind Robber, The Crotons, The War Games, Frontier in Space, which is the ish. He ish. reshot the ending because he was doing also Planet of the Daleks. He also did Genesis of the Daleks and Planet of Evil. We will also see his work again in The Talents of Wang Cheyenne, which will be his final story. The working title of the story is The Dangerous Assassin, which I, I don't think is as good a title, to be honest. <laughs> um, the title that they went with, The Deadly Assassin, is generally considered to be a tautology, meaning it's basically a redundant statement. An assassin is, by definition, deadly. That's, that's their job. <laughs> um, and apparently this is what they were parodying. Pari- pari- and apparently it's what they were parodying in The Curse of the Fatal Death. Again, <laughs> death by its very nature is fatal. However, Bob Holmes did defend himself, saying the title wasn't wasn't a tautology. There we go. Mm-hmm. Because he says there are plenty of incompetent assassins. Fair enough. Yeah, Fair that's enough. true. There are. This is the only televised story in the original run of the show, so in the classic series, to feature the Doctor... With no companion. So we've had stories that have no doctor in them. Or like episodes that have no doctor in them. We had a story that had no doctor or companions. But this is the first one that has the doctor without a companion. Or someone that we would consider to be a companion unit. Counting obviously as companion in that sentence. When Elizabeth Slayton left. uh, Tom Baker had asked for the Pinchcliffe. If he really needed a companion, couldn't he just do it by himself? Um, that's not to say that obviously he wanted Liz to leave, but he didn't want to replace her with anybody else. Yeah. With this story already sort of set in place, it was a good way to sort of test out and see how that would work. And they kind of decided that, no, that that's not going to work. <laughs> and the companion was needed. And we can talk about that a bit more, I think, in our discussion. Mm. Uh this story featured the first use of narration, which came as a fucking shock to me, who's never seen the story before, uh, which was performed by Tom Baker and recreated by Paddy Fox. Thank you very much. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. From a narrative perspective, this serial introduced a lot. So we have mm. 
several notable figures of Time Lord Society. So we get, you know, Rassilon gets, you know, a lot more background. We obviously have um, Barossa being mentioned as well. Also, like, Time Lord and Gallifreyan Society gets covered. Um, the Matrix, the different chapters of the Time Lords, their robes, like, their, which are ceremonial, not everyday. And also, it introduced the idea of a Time Lord having a limited number of regenerations. That number mm. being 12, allowing a maximum of 13 incarnations, after which you get to permadeath. So this was introduced here in this story. And it's one of the things, and we might discuss it later on, but just to clarify, like, a lot of people sort of say, like, oh, it was just in this one story, it was a throwaway line. And it isn't because it does get brought up in other stories before the revival of the show. Um, but this is the one that really sort of laid the groundwork for a lot of that. Yeah, and it's like even even before or not even beforehand, uh, in terms of the regeneration numbers and stuff like that, it it's brought up during Matt Smith's run that mm. there is the finite number. Um also I suppose, te technically speaking, if at the time the brain of Morbius was taken into account, this would be the, also the Doctor's last regeneration. Because there Bob was also people. wrote the brain of Morbius. So, you know, yeah. Bob Holmes are really doing a lot of the groundwork here um, mm. for Gallifreyan society. And he also did something interesting. and It was something I, I thought was kind of peculiar in the three doctors mm. the the pres the lord president and the chancellor both appear mm. but it seems in that story the chancellor has superior power to the president whereas here they kind of put in the sense that the chancellor is subservient to the president or i think it's probably areas of responsibility um we never see a gallifrey and racy model so you know <laughs> yeah true um yeah, but like, I know I I loved the idea of like these various chapters and like how they say like the Pridonians have produced more presidents than any other chapter within the history of the Citadel. Mm. I, I just think that's kind of cool. It sort of just reminds me of the houses in Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, th that's the the big thing that came to my head as well. Um, in terms of the Master, so we see the Master again, and we'll discuss a bit more about the gentleman who portrayed him a little bit later on. But in terms of televised adventures, we don't actually know if this version of the Master is the same ver like, incarnation that was portrayed by Roger Delgado, or if the Roger Delgado Master regenerated into this version of the Master. How many regenerations was that? We're not giving any indication in terms of story about that. However, there are two novels called Last of the Gardarine and Legacy of the Daleks that explain how he came to be the way he appears in the story. I haven't read those books, so I can't speak to them. But... I have read Last of the Gardarine, but I read it years ago, so I can't mm. really remember how it's explained. But the the best way to imagine the master is like imagine like you know like those models of like the human body, mm. but like the outer layer of skin is removed and it's down to the near skeletal musculature mm. and then just covered in honey. That's what you're. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Yeah, I agree with you. The cliffhanger for part three. 
mm-hmm. is particularly vicious. Um, basically, the cliffhanger is a freeze frame of the doctor being drowned. Um, and it's not a case of like, oh, you see him off in the distance. No, no, no. You see him under the water and it freezes on his face as he's drowning. And that's the thing. It's it's not like the the usual um, underneath shot, you know, where it's like it's not the doctor looking up. Pers- it's it's your man got choking him on. Un- yeah, it's yeah. got choking him under the water, so his face is facing yeah. up. It's particularly terrifying. I'm not going to lie. Um, and as mm. you can imagine, it drew the attention of Mary Whitehouse, Mrs. Harry White. <laughs> I was going to say Mrs. Harry Whitehouse, but uh, Mrs. Yeah. Mary Whitehouse. Who completely lambasted the show because of it. And a couple of things happened as a result of the negative reactions. Because the public wasn't a big fan of it either. Um, I didn't see a citation for this being the actual reason. But it seems to be a common belief. Bill Pinchcliffe was replaced as producer at the end of the season. The BBC wiped the offending cliffhanger. From the master pal color videotape, which is one of the few times that's happened post nineteen seventy four Doctor Who footage being done, so that it wouldn't be aired again. They actually wiped the tape with that Jesus. bit of the ending. However, an off air videotape recording of the uncensored broadcast was still intact, which is how. The DVDs were done and how we can watch it now with that um, cliffhanger in place. But originally the BBC were like, oops, wipe it under the rug, edit it out. We're not we're not doing that anymore. And it seems that Philip Hinchcliffe, like who was really sort of you know pushing the boundaries, you know, there's talk about like, you know, Philip and Bob Holmes, like, let's scare the little fuckers, you know really wanting to go deep on sort of the more um, horror and kind of more macabre side of the stories. It seems that they kind of came back to bite him in the ass um, Mm. with this one. Um, Part of what made the drowning scene so disturbing is actually comes from Tom Baker's acting. Tom Baker's aquaphobic. He has a fear of drowning. And so his fear that you can see is quite real he was terrified of drowning um, and he was apparently so worried about the cliffhanger that he actually visited a random family to watch and to watch that story and see how they responded because he was so concerned about the impact it would have on kids watching that cliffhanger Jeez. yeah because I think you, you, his aquaphobia was brought up in Android Invasion wasn't it it was a bit, yeah, because he had to do another underwater bit there as well. Yeah. Um, but here, like, imagine you have a fear of drowning and you have to play at drowning and the camera's on you. Like, I would... Like, I wouldn't say, like, I'm aquaphobic or anything. I do, however, have a fear of drowning. And that would freak me out to no end. Speaking of phobias, did you close your eyes? Yes, I did. Well, no, because obviously... Yeah. Okay. Paddy warned me that at one point in the story there was going to be a clown. And I was like, going, where the fuck is there a clown in this? And it was when the doctor was like rubbing away the sand or something. And I saw like the briefest glimpse. I was like, nope. And I was sort of like peeking everything again to see if it was gone. 
Um, but yeah, thank you for the heads up. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. Stupid fucking clowns. Anyway, moving on. Um, mm-hmm. The letter that the doctor wrote uh, that the Castellan reads. So in rehearsals, the note was written in English. So George Pravda, who played the Castellan, didn't bother learning what it said. Because he just read it. In the actual show, it's written in Gallifreyan. Not the swirly circles that people refer to as Gallifreyan now, but in, I don't know, low-form Gallifreyan, I suppose. And so your man has no fucking clue. (laughs) Which is why, you can see that he actually gets quite pale and a bit sweaty. And he kind of stumbles over the words a bit. It's because he didn't fucking know what the words were. (laughs) He was trying to remember them. Which I love. I love bits like that. And obviously, like, had mm. that been, you know, first Doctor era, oh, that would have been it. Yeah. Like, there's no retakes. Do you know what I mean? So, uh, it's like, and there weren't as many retakes in this era of the show. They, they had a few, but like, still not that many. Um, so the fact that like your man was just like, shit. <laughs> um. On the subject of Gallifreyan there, as mm. far as I'm aware, there are three distinct forms of Gallifreyan shown in the show. Mm. There's this low form that we see in this one. There's old high Gallifreyan, which was going to is going to appear in The Five Doctors. Mm. And then there's the more modern Gallifreyan, which is like weird circle in intersecting mm. um, shapes. That seems to be like the, the newest language variation of it. Yeah. The interesting about it, because I often see this coming up on like forums and stuff, like, oh, I want to know, like, what, like, how do you write this in Gallifreyan? There is no, like, unlike, say, Klingon or Elvish, there is no canonical Gallifreyan language. Language. There's, like, unfortunately, Doctor Who didn't have a James Doohan. Yeah, so like you can't like there is no way of saying well this definitively says this, um, which is unfortunate. Um, do you know because I know a lot of people get like tattoos and stuff like that. Um, technically speaking, that's what it says to you, or that's what it says as per this particular generation engine. But there is no like unlike you know Elvish, you know where you've got like um, all the different levels of Elvish. And even Dwarvish in many ways. Like there's lots of different definitions. Like hmm. Tolkien, obviously, big language person, whatever. So he did all the different languages for that. Um, and, you know, Klingon has obviously been translated. I mean, they translated Shakespeare into Klingon, for fuck's sake. Um, but <laughs> Doctor Who doesn't have that. Which is unfortunate, I think. Hmm. There's another scene uh, where poor George Pravda <laughs> got kind of shafted a little bit. Um the scene where the doctor is sitting on a chair trying to manipulate the chancellor um, into sort of helping him. And there's one point where the doctor sort of jumps out of his chair and looms over the chancellor, kind of trying to intimidate him. And you can see uh, you that... Mean ca- you mean you mean the Castellan? The Castellan, yeah, the Castellan, sorry. Um, Spangel, there we go. I'll go with Spangel. I was trying to give him his title and I kept forgetting. So yeah, so he sort of looms over Spangel to try and intimidate him. That was an ad lib by Tom <laughs> and George Pravda was like shit <laughs> what's he doing <laughs> which I love I love that your man's like very honest reactions are captured actually that that's another thing that kind of confused me right is that 
he's the he's the cast uh, Castellan Castellan whatever of the Citadel. Mm. Yet the personal chan- chancery guard report mm. to him. So these are the bodyguards or the ar- like the armed guards of the chancellors. Why shouldn't like surely there's they, shouldn't they be like the custodian guard or the Castellan guard as opposed to the chancery guard? I don't think they're all chancery guard. I think like uh, what's his face? Um, Hildred is like clearly a like a guard of the citadel, and then you have the guards who mind the chancellors. Yeah. But see, this is the thing now is that the guards have no, like, unlike the various Time Lord chapters, mm. the guards have no distinguishing markings on their uniforms from what I saw to distinguish mm. whether or not they're personal guards or they're citadel guards. Yeah, I, I, I do think there is, my reader was that there was two branches of it. You have the citadel guards mm. for general, and then you've got the chancery guards um, who do, like, special protection. When, when I heard chancery guards, like my Irishness just came, like I was like, ah, oh, yeah, bunch of chancers, a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at one point in the Matrix sequences, there is a biplane. Um, this is a 1949 Stamp SV4C plane, and it was the registration for it is GAWXZ, and it was also used in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and the Mummy. Random. Uh, the thing that always confused the crap out of me, uh, the mm-hmm. seal of Rassilon, the sort of infinity mm. circle spiral, mm-hmm. is also the symbol from Revenge of the Cybermen, which was Roger Murray Leach. He just reused it. Mm. <laughs> so it's very interesting when you go back and watch it because you're like, oh my god, like that that because I knew it from. Obviously, it appears later on in the revival and stuff, I remember watching Revenge of the Cybermen and being like, are they related to the Time Lords? Is there some... Co-? There's no fucking connection. It was Roger Murray Leach was lazy and so he's reused the symbol for both. <laughs> um, before we get into our cast, just a call out, this is an exclusively male cast bar one person mm-hmm. who does not appear on screen, which is the female computer voice. That's it. No other women. Yeah. Which is why when uh, Romana comes on the scene, it's a bit of a, oh, wow, we didn't realize this at all. Yeah. I would assume they have women because Susan exists. But. Uh, yeah, but like. Within no, the Citadel, we don't see any women. Yeah, no one within the Citadel. Yeah. Or any any other aspect of it. Yeah. Okay, so let's go on to our cast. So, mm-hmm. Castellan Spandrel or Castellan. How the fuck were they pronouncing the word Castellan? Well, I think I think they, I think they pronounce it Castellan. Yeah, okay. So Castellan, this is the word. Spandrel is, as I said, George Pravda. This is the final of three appearances for George. We previously saw him in The Enemy of the World, where he played Alexander Denish, and also in The Mutants, as he was Professor Jaeger. As Barusa, we have Angus McKay. This is the first of two appearances for Angus. We'll see him again in Mordron Undead. His non-who credits include Dixon of Doc Green, Doom Watch, Zed Cars, Steptoe and Son, The Sweeney, Only Fools and Horses, and One Foot in the Grave. Angus passed away in 2013. Speaking of Only Fools and Horses, <laughs> our good friend Paul Canauer, just his timing was impeccable because he sent us his impression of Boise <laughs> today, which was excellent, and it really helped cheer up 
after the the bad news. So yeah, yeah. cheers, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Engen is Eric Chitty. This is the second and final appearance for Eric. We previously saw him as Charles Preslin in the massacre. His non-who credits include Henry the Fourth, The Tempest, Ten Sixty Six, and all that. Oliver Twist, Paul of Tarsus, Doctor Zhivago, and Dad's Army. Eric passed away in nineteen seventy-seven. Chancellor Goth is played by Bernard Horswell. This is the fourth and final appearance for Bernard. We previously saw him in The Mind Robber, where he was Lemuel Gulliver, in The War Games as a Time Lord. Possibly the same one. He didn't have a name then. And in Planet of the Daleks, where he played Taran. The Master in the story is played by Peter Pratt. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Peter. His non-Who credits include The Best of Philbert and Sullivan, The Story of Ruth, Murder Must Advertise, and Zed Cars. Peter passed away in 1995. As Hildred, we have Derek Seaton. Again, only Doctor Who acting credit for Derek. His non-Who credits include People Like Us and Mothers Make Five and Mother Makes Five, Dumby and Son, Zed Cars, and Marked Personnel. Derek passed away in 1975. Lastly, as Runcible, who we won't really be discussing, but we want to include him in here is Hugh Walters. This is story two of three for Hugh. We previously saw him in The Chase, where he played William Shakespeare when Barbara's looking into the past with the screen thing. Mm-hmm. And we'll see him again in Revelation of the Daleks. His non-who credits include 1984, The Train Now Standing, Agatha Christie's Miss Marple, The Body in the Library, Ivanhoe, and Heartbeat. Hugh passed away in 2015. Anything else you want to add to the trivia section, Paddington? Uh, not that I could think of, although what I will say is seeing all the various Time Lords in their colour patterns and robes, I was dying for a bag of, like, you know, those raspberry and fucking banana sweets. They're, they look like bullseyes, but they're raspberry and banana flavoured. Oh. I don't yeah. think I've ever noticed raspberry and banana. Oh, sorry, no, raspberry and custard. Raspberry and custard. Oh, no, those, yes, those look like. Yes. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Pick and mix. <laughs> so, uh, we now come to a very new character discussion where there is no companions. Mm. Interesting. How long will it last? <laughs> but this week we have the Doctor, prominent characters of Spandrel, Engen, excuse me, uh, Barusa and Hildred, mm-hmm. and then we have the villains of Got and the Master. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you started off last week, so I think I'll start off this week because we figured out that's how the the system works. <laughs> I never uh, pay attention, so, so off you go. <laughs> yeah, okay, perfect. Aha, excellent. My word is law. Um, the <laughs> <laughs> not on air <laughs> go on sorry your thoughts on the doctor go yeah uh, one thing I really like about this right is that you could picture any of the previous incarnations of the doctor in this story and you'd get the exact same behavior from each of them like this complete irreverence for the pomp and circumstance of the citadel and the bureaucracy of the high council hmm. like like obviously, you know the the action sequence within the Matrix itself. Yeah, you'd probably either see John or Tom, mm. but just like before that, the very nature of the whole setup, like you could see Patrick doing great in this, you could see Hartnell doing great in this. Like 
any of them. Mm. They'd all have they'd all have that thing. So I, I really liked uh, I like that aspect of it, and I think that's that's a reflection of Tom doing what I like to you know as I've always said is carrying on the spirit of the character, yeah. like still being him, but staying core like true to the core of the um, who the Doctor is, mm. like this this rene this renegade this person which is like you know like your your authority is fucking stupid um like even Bruce brings it up in a line you know i i love Bruce's comments to the doctor mm. it's just like this old headmaster type thing uh so it's like yeah um like you know you won't amount to anything in the galaxy if you continue this facetious nature of yours and it's like i'll take it any day of the week thank you very much <laughs> uh it is interesting to see him without a companion mm. Like it is, because in one way it's 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 nice to see him with undiv- an undivided attention, like he that he doesn't have to worry about where the other person is. Mm. That he can focus all on this one thing. However, I do think that he does need someone there with him to kind of channel the ex- the eccentricities of his character. Mm. Um. But I really liked his interactions with, um, I think Spandrel and, we'll, I suppose we'll speak to a more about Spandrel, but Spandrel and the Doctor here make actually a very good team. I, I like the two of them together. Yeah. Um, but no, I think this was like, as a solo performance with the Doctor, I think this was a good outing. I mm-hmm. think it was. Cool. I think, I think for uh, me, so yeah. this is really the Doctor as we've never seen him before. Shot, beaten, and nearly drowned all on screen. It's quite visible yeah. to watch it. There's no hiding it in any of it. Like, no, we've seen his him in peril. Like we've seen him like suffering radiation sickness mm-hmm. in the Daleks. You know, we've seen him multiple times near death with uh, Patrick and John. Um, so, but yeah, as you said, this is the first time he's like just absolutely beaten the fuck up. Yeah, and like it, you can see him over the course of the story. Do you know? He gets shot in the leg, and so he binds the leg, which tear, which requires him to tear his shirt. Then he gets shot in the arm, and you've got like the shirt is getting dirty, the arm is bloodied, his face is getting more dirty, and then of course you have the drowning sequence and whatever. It's it's quite visceral, um, mm. and not what I was expecting going into the story because I didn't really know much about the story going in. Um, I I knew a little bit, like generally speaking, from like watching clips and stuff about the. Shooty of the president. Th- this is part. a, but like that was about it. Yeah. Um. So this is a very notorious. This is sorry. This is a very notorious story for like the um, the, the stuff with Mary mm-hmm. Whitehouse and her campaign about you know appropriate television, but the the setting of the lore within you know Gallifrey, um, confusing the fuck out of some people because they think that this is you know what starts the time war, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and but yeah, no, it's. It is really cool. Yeah, but I think think it's... I can understand people being put off by it. It is incredibly visceral. Coming off... And bear in mind, like, in last week's story, we had someone being knocked off a very high set of stairs. We had someone being crushed to death and whatever. Just the way they shot that this is way more Rambo than I was really expecting from my Doctor Who, to be honest. Mm. Um, I do like his Gallifreyan boots, though. The red boots that he wears, with the sort of red pants, mm-hmm. they suit him quite well. I kind of wish he kept them. And his, 
and his shirt. He looks like he's just fallen out of a Renaissance whorehouse window. He reminded me a little bit of like <laughs> a slightly mental version of Darcy from the BBC production of Pride and Prejudice. Uh, yeah, I can see that. I can see like that. Like the pond scene where he goes for some. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not sure I'm a big fan of the Doctor Solo. Um, particularly of Tom's Doctor. So I don't know if it's like channeling, like you said, channeling that eccentricity. The talking to himself comes across as weird. Like I think it was different when Hartnell used to talk to himself because he would mutter to himself. <laughs> mm. Whereas Tom was speaking as if there was somebody else in the room. And... You know, you could very easily have put a companion in the room and it wouldn't have changed anything. Like, I think the delivery would have been the same. And I'm mm. not sure I'm the biggest fan of it. Um, now, you know, we might see in the next story if it continues. I might see a bit better, but like... I don't know if this doctor on his own works for me. At least in the writing. In the acting, that's different. Do you know what I mean? But like in the mm. writing and the script, it's like, well, why is he talking? Like He's saying a lot of things out loud that he would have said to Sarah Jane in response to a question. And now he's just saying it to nobody because there isn't a companion there to ask the question, but the audience still needs to know what he's thinking. And whereas with Bill, he would sort of mutter to himself, and it was sort of, mm. it sort of came across a little bit differently. Um, I would say the doctor is also quite vicious in this. I know it's in mm. self defense, but it is a much darker turn for the doctor than we've seen previously. And you and I kind of discussed, you know, a little bit about the brain of Morbius. How that was quite a visceral story. You know, we've, you know, um, Kondo being shot and whatever. But there's some, I don't know if it's the way that this is shot, but like. He just seems more vicious. Like, he was going to shoot the real assassin using the gun. So using the the Stazer rifle. He was going to shoot the real assassin. Which is not something we've seen from the Doctor before. Usually you'd have the Doctors trying to get someone's attention and like trying to divert attention away from it or... You would have seen him like jump up in front of the president and try to knock him to the side rather than going after the assassin or rather than picking up the gun and doing anything with it. So that is quite different as well. Um, also, if he was going mm. to shoot the real assassin using the gun by looking down the sides, how did he not know who it was? Well, I think what the, he said he already saw the gun. But he the zoom the on face. the fucking sights wasn't that fucking acute like but see but this is the thing as well as that like um i think i in your thoughts about like you know pushing the president out of the way like he wouldn't have had time to go down there so like maybe just like calling out would have been a better option or yeah, like, but then, like, to distract he wouldn't have gone up in the first place he would have done the pushing out of the way possibly um well like no like but he saw someone up above with the rifle. That's what prompted him to yeah, go Yeah, but up he there. would have just pushed the president. He's... He could have just pushed the president out of the way as opposed to going up to find out who, who was up above. The president hadn't arrived yet. Well, he could have waited. Do I mean, like, the point is that like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, see what you're, yeah. I see what you're trying to say. I see what you're trying to say, yeah. Um, um, so like, yeah. I'm not quite sure how I feel about all of that. Um, it's left me quite conflicted, to be honest. Like, it's all really good. The performance was amazing by Tom. And whatever, but I'm a bit conflicted around his mentality. And part of me is like, oh, he's traveling alone. 
if we think about like you know, the modern show like oh he, he doesn't do well by himself and I'm like yeah but like he went in some cases off in a direction we've never seen before and maybe the role of the companion is to rein him in do you know maybe maybe that is the role of the companion um because we, we we have talked like you know at times about like the the more violent aspect of the doctor like i suppose the thing that might come closest to this is an earthly child mm. you know when he takes up the rock to finish off uh Ka or za mm. can't remember his name um so we talked about like that kind of dark streak of the doctor and then there's suppose there was the second doctor example of seeds of doom or sorry seeds of death and then there's obviously doc john's hatred for ogrons which is that he has no problem picking up a weapon to fucking shoot them but i think probably the we've never seen him in a one-on-one kill or be killed scenario mm. i don't think which is like the, the thing with the hunter uh which is probably the biggest example of like the the misgames you have there yeah. which you know it, it is a complete thing because like we've seen the doctor be an action man of sorts mm. But we've never seen him be this down and dirty in a fight. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. Do you know? Um, I think think we've gotten so used to, like, an action doctor being this slightly swashbuckling character. mm. To actually see him as, like, a sort of a pit fighter Mm. is a big kind of leap. Yeah. It's something that we haven't seen in the show as a routine, you Mm. know? What I will say, though, is that I was pleasantly surprised at how well he worked with Engin and the Castellan. Um, mm. You know, he gets frustrated with them both, but he does work really well with them. And mm-hmm. his frustration is more based around the situation. It's not really necessarily targeted at them. Do you know? Like, you, yeah. you sort of expect, like, the way that he spe- he's speaking to Time Lords in the past, like, when they took him to Scarrow and, like, all that kind of stuff, you sort of imagine that he'd be way more belligerent with them mm. and he's like he doesn't really pay attention to the pomp and circumstance but he does pay attention to the people though do you know what i mean like yeah he's not an asshole to them which he very no, he very easily it's... could have been yeah. it's the high council more so like you know like it's the upper echelons of like high time north society that he's like you know they're kind of dicks <laughs> well yeah but we don't really see that too much in this story in particular do you know what I mean? Like, he seems to be, you know, he may not necessarily agree with them. He seems to be relatively respectful of everything. Do you know what I mean? Um, hmm. And, like, the way he jokingly called Bruce a sir the whole time as if, like, he's still his teacher. Yeah. Which is quite nice. I think I think it's by virtue of the fact like, that we, the Time Lords that we see him interact with are mostly, like, in his are trying to help him. Like, we haven't seen, like, him in a scenario... If the court case mm. had actually been a bit more of a, a trial and jury type mm. thing, then maybe we would have seen him with that, you know, anger towards the eliteness of the Time Lords. But as you say, yeah, it's like, for the most part, with the ones that he does interact with, it's pretty chill. Yeah, like, he, like I think, like, it's clear that he sort of takes issue with, like, how Time Lord society is becoming stagnant or whatever, but... He has an issue with, like, the society, not necessarily with the people. Do you know? Like, he doesn't mm. seem to hold it against the Castellan individually. Do you know what I mean? No, no, or no. Or even no, Goth individually. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
do you know like he he'll defend himself and he'll use whatever articles he can to do that but he could have very easily got in and been like super belligerent and like how fucking dare you and well he wouldn't say fucking obviously but like how dare you and you're being like the, the being the child and stuff like that which i think we may have seen with john funnily enough i yeah, think john no, would have been a lot no. more childish in his john, interactions than tom john was. and patrick i think yeah John and Patrick, which is yeah. interesting when you consider that like, you know Tom is always the one that's sort of cited as being the more childish. Um, hmm. I think John would have been much more belligerent, I think, and much more high and mighty. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, well, you may not have been able to telepathically receive a message, but I could. Do you know? Like he doesn't lord that over them. He's like, don't you know we can do that? No, no, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so overall, I think it was a great performance by Tom. I'm just conflicted on the doctor on his own. I don't think I like it. <laughs> See, this is one of those rare instances like where it's like again, we're only seeing the one off. Mm. It would have to, it would have to be like two or three stories on the trot to really cement our feelings on. Yeah, I agree. On the yeah. Uh so up next is the prominent characters. So we have Spandrel, Engen, Barusa, and Hildred. What way do you want to do it? Why don't we do Hildred first, poor bastard? Yeah. And get him out yeah. of the way. Because the other three are sort of of a similar level. And then you've got poor fucking Hildred mm. on his own. Um, the sort of rank and file being berated by leadership, you know. You see, and it, that, that's kind of an interesting thing, right? Because I... I think Spandrel does come down on him a bit hard at times. No, sorry, no, not at times. He comes down on him hard quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Spandrel's kind of a dick to Hildred. Yeah, I mean, Hildred but, did lose his target. Do you know what I mean? Spandrel is like, yeah. you had ample warning there was a target going to turn up. You have all of these men. And you still managed to lose him. How the fuck do you manage? Like, he's not wrong. But I think it's not entirely fair the way he spoke because he he seems generally competent and good at his job. Um, yes, it's just the doctor. But like every, works. <laughs> but it's like every other time that Hildred and him interact, it's always like this like snarky comment or you know it's like I, I are you sure you can handle this? You know it's like talking to a small child. But I'm not necessarily sure like that. I'm a fan of Hildred because of how he channels that. You know those uh, reprimands because that scene where he's interrogating the doctor, mm. uh, he takes a little too much enjoyment out of using the fucking torture implement on him. Yeah, I mean that is, is that... very much a "you got me in trouble." Yeah, fuck you, sort of reaction. Which, yeah, I mean, I said like poor bastard. I mean, poor bastard in terms of his death because his death absolutely sucked. He, t- yeah. he didn't deserve oh, yeah. that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but again. Given the way I mean, the doctor comments on it, where you've got like good cop, bad cop, was Hildred meant to do all of that so that Spandrel would appear as good cop? Do you know? Maybe we don't know like mm-hmm. how much of that was Hildred being like you, fucker, you had me running all over the citadel. I got in trouble. Mm-hmm. I nearly lost my job. <laughs> Feel the pain, fucker. And how much was this is a interrogation tactic that they have? 
Yeah, because it's, like for the most part, Hildred isn't bad at his no, job. No, he's not. Like you know, like we, he, yeah, we haven't seen any other kind of gross incompetency on his part, bar the fact that they got outwitted by the doctor. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that stands out to me with Hildred is that his death totally sucked. Um, mm. and you totally know that, like, if he had been successful in staising the corpses and stuff like that. You totally know that if that ever got out, he'd be the fucker thrown under the bus. Oh, hugely. It, like, the, hugely. Everyone would have blamed him for it. Do you know? It mm-hmm. wouldn't have been anyone else's fault. And that's why I sort of say, like, poor bastard. Like, do you know what I mean? He's sort of like yeah. the rank and file dealing with this sort of somewhat elitist leadership structure. Um, and really sort of seeing that, like, not every. Not everyone on Gallifrey is treated the same or has the same level of respect assigned to mm. them. You know, you do have the rank and file fuckers running around with guns, fucking trying to keep the peace or whatever, and getting berated mm. when something doesn't go quite right. And interesting you speak of Time North Society like that because uh, Spandrew makes a comment about a group called the Shabogans, mm. which we're going to see come up later on in Tom's run that's like yeah okay if you think that's bad it's a lot worse yeah um but yeah I think I think my main point on Hildred is poor bastard got given out to a lot I agree with you maybe channeled mm. some of that in an unhealthy way <laughs> yeah definitely um but overall an interesting character to include I think mm, definitely um Maybe we leave Spandrel and Elgin together because they're they're the sort of companions yeah, of the prominent character. Closest to, I think. Closest to, yeah. Mm. So Barusa next. I'm not sure how I feel about him. On the one okay. hand, he's a defender of the law and he's not one to throw an mm-hmm. innocent man in jail. On the other hand, he's perfectly willing to light the public to keep the ruling order in charge. Oh, like... Barusa is a spin doctor, true and true. Hmm. Like he is, like the, he is the the quintessential political fixer who knows the dirty secrets, and he's just like, okay, we just have to address this in this way, and you know, you you kind of get the impression that he knows where the bodies are kept, hmm. but no, I know as you say, like he's a a staunch proponent of we keep the law because that's hmm. who we are. Like we have this constitution, and we're we're our law is what defines us, and what we are is you know lawful type thing. Uh, but outside of that, he no, he doesn't do anything that I would say he has very little altruism. Everything is for the benefit of keeping the status quo in order. Yeah, and not necessarily himself. It's not necessarily no, for his the, benefit. The, yeah, but he but like just benefits the, the ruling by order extension. Yeah, you know. so it's like because he's like he's one of the cardinals, mm. uh, who who oversee the whole voting process and everything like that, and like all the laws. So so long as they're in those laws are in place that as they benefit the cardinals, mm. he'll do whatever he deems necessary to benefit also, the cardinals. He was a dick to what's his face, Runcible. Runcible, yeah. So Runcible is because doing again the like broadcast about yeah this proceedings 
he asks you for an interview and live on air, you basically say you were a shit student and you're a shit adult. Mm-hmm. Fuck you, dude. Yeah. Your man's just doing his job. Oh, he's he's that fucking douchey schoolmaster. Like when you go back home, he's like, ah, yes, you know. I like you know. I often wondered if you'd amount to much, and now I have my answer. That type of fucking shite. Yeah. Um. Like it's funny, you know, the way he gives like the doctor the nine out of ten at the end or whatever. So like, it's I'm sort of conflicted. Sort of conflicted on the way I am about him because on the one hand, you know, it's good to have characters who are defenders of law and who, mm. in a situation where it's understandable how the ruling class would want to just throw the doctor under the bus. He was caught red-handed. Mm-hmm. Fuck it, it's done. Um, it's nice that he doesn't allow that to go through, but on the other hand, he's a conniving little fucker, like, and a bit of a dick. He he, re- he really is. And Angus McKay, I think, did a really good job. Oh, I agree. I think he did a really like he's like he makes you hate him so much for his like you know he seems so apathetic hmm. to certain things, you know, like the loss of lives as he said like but how can we change the story to save face mm. you know it's like dude fuck off but then there's like that you know as you say like, like that sort of doctor nine out of ten it's like you can't help but smile at that line like you, you really can't um and i suppose that's the nature of like a spin doctor it's like you know they are inherently charismatic people mm. you know um well, for the most part, I've heard like guys like Carl Rove and all this kind of people are the absolute fucking scum. But I don't know. But you know, it's like you, I, it, again, a in a story that has, I would say, phenomenal acting mm. from everyone. I don't think there's a bad performance by anyone in this story. No, I agree. Yeah, so like we're like two on the trot now, mm. realistically, which is great. Um, but like, yeah, he's just like, you can't help me mad at him at the end. Or it's like, you know, that nine out of ten, that that, that smile. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. <laughs> Fair enough. Wait, I was mad at you five minutes ago. Fuck you. <laughs> cool. Then we have Engen and the Castellan. I would nearly do Engen first and then yeah, the Castellan. Because no. the Castellan is more, the more prominent of the two, I think. Mm. Um, yeah. Engen kind of reminds me of Jocasta Noon, Attack of the Clones. Trusting the system and not believing that someone can override it. Like, I'm half convinced George Lucas watched this and went, oh, the, like, infallible library. Well, no one could yeah. no one could change it. If it's not there, it doesn't exist. I'm like, am I just watching Attack of the Clones now? <laughs> yeah, that's, that, you know, she was the person that came into my head and I was like, there's... Well, it was like, well, apparently he fucking stole a plane for, like, you know, or they took the plane from this. Why not take, you know, a character from it? Um... But yeah, there is this, that thing of like, you know, well, you know, this is because it's completely infallible. And again, Spandrel, as a good cop, kind of said, you know, you know. But who if could. could over... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like, well, you know, I suppose. And it's like, well, you know, it's not so fucking infallible now, is it? Mm. Um, he is a very contradict. He is a contradiction in terms of, of who and what his, who he is and what his role is, I think. Mm. Right, because the very nature of Time Lords is is that they are long lived people with multiple with multiple long lives. Mm-hmm. Because as we saw with Hartnell, we're to presume that he lived for 
roughly 400 plus years mm. in in that one particular well at the time mm. that one particular body um so imagine like you've got x amount of people that have all this type of thing but it's like how far back into their society is rassilon that for a society as ancient and long-lived as the time lords that his actions have become legend and mythic yeah you know that they this is the thing right so i i had this in my overall i'm gonna bring it up now because it like i said it relates to this character this character is the librarian for lack of a better word right Mm -hmm. he is the holder of record he and only a handful of other people can access the record and the matrix the whole idea of it is that it's built from it's like a giant pencil it's like built from the consciousness and the memories of all those who came before how the fuck did he forget his own history how does he not know it like how does he not know like oh the sasha grasslon is just you know it's just an ornate thing it's like or like this pole that just so happens to fit in this hole no no there's no like, how do you not know that dude and like i think this is like bob yeah. obviously trying to tell a story and like engin had a purpose yeah. and he just didn't think it out too much but like when you're watching it, you're like, how? Do, why is the doctor someone who apparently wasn't great in school, one of the best? How is he telling you not only Time Lord history, but also like Time Lord physio- physiognomy and like what they can do? Yeah. And like the fact that he's like, oh well, you can't predict the future. The point of this machine is to predict the future. It's like. What? <laughs> so like he, yeah, he he's such a contradictory character. Like he really is. Like mm. in the sense of, like you can't have the occupation that you have and be the species that you are and have this much level of fucking skepticism to the origins. <laughs> yeah, I would say so like I would say like you know, he's a little too obsessed with his job in some senses. You know, he's prone to a drone, mm. as I would say. Do you know, like. Yeah. Keeps talking in one long, incredibly unbroken sentence, moving from topic to topic, I think. Overall, a good guy, though. Oh, yeah. I I like him and Spandrel together. Um, I think they work really well together. And again, like Engin, again, he didn't throw the doctor under the bus. Do you know? No. He, well, he didn't necessarily believe everything he was saying. He didn't, like, penalize him for things he didn't hold anything against him he didn't try to Mm. imply that the doctor was the one who broke in to do this and the doctor must have deleted the file and there is no such person as the master Mm. like he doesn't believe that there was ever a file but at the same time he doesn't not believe that the master exists yeah do you know he's like well you're talking about somebody but i don't have anyone on file with that so maybe they have a different name or something you're like you know He's open mm. to other possibilities, just not the fact that someone called the master could have been deleted because you can't delete anything from my system. Yeah. If it's not in the system, it doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> and then you've got, like, if I wasn't there to see it, it if, it's, if I wasn't there to see it, it's just a story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think he's an interesting character. Um, I was quite sad to mm. find that the actor sort of passed away in 1977. This is one of his last roles that he would have done um i thought he was very good i think yeah. I, I think he would be i think he would have been an interesting 
return to Gallifrey character to have. Like an interesting touch point mm-hmm. in any return to Gallifrey yeah. episodes. Mm, I'd agree. Mm. And so then we have Sp- Spandrel. Yes. Uh, I actually quite like him, other than the way he treats mm. Hildred. There's a big asterisk on that part. But yeah, generally I t- speaking, I, t- I quite like him. Like, yeah, because like straight off the bat, right? Outside of his, you know, demeaning, <laughs> like or like unnecessarily demeaning mm. um, ref- reprimands, he's a fucking good cop. Yeah. He's a really good detective. Like, because he doesn't allow any kind of preconceived notions mm. influence the course of his investigations. And it's like, you know, oh, here's the man. We found him with the fucking rifle. And it's like, well, we still have to investigate, you know? Mm. It's... There, there is a process to this. He is due a trial. He will investigate his statements, mm-hmm. and then you know, g- going to Engin, and it's like you know, is there you know, like oh, the machine's infallible, but is it possible that something could happen? And it's like, well, yeah, if that's the case, then who could possibly do it? Or is someone with the set of skills? Well, okay, fair enough. You're now limiting my potential suspect pool. He's a really, really good cop. Yeah, I really liked his scene where he was talking to the computer and it was like, you know, list number of currently registered type 40s. There are no currently registered type 40s. How many Mm. were registered? 305. Mm. How many have been deregistered? 304. The fact he thought to ask... Yeah, it, like it's like outside. It, it's the outside the know, box um, thinking. It it's Beverly and remember me. Do you know? Like, yeah. what is the nature of the universe? I fucking got you there, didn't I? You bitch. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's that sort of yeah. Yeah. thing that he's really good at. It, also, like, while he is high and mighty over Hildred, mm-hmm. he doesn't assume he knows everything. He's perfectly willing to admit that he doesn't understand psionics. Or advanced psionics, or whatever mm. it was that the Matrix machine is built from. He's probably willing to, but there are plenty of things he's not an expert in. Do you know, he didn't study yeah. those things, and like, there's no like, well, of course I know that. What, what do you mean? Like, there's no bluster about it. It's like, no, I, mm. I don't have a fucking clue what you're talking about. But explain it to me, please. Yeah. Like, yeah, I know I like, I'm the fucking glorified beat cop. That doesn't matter. Like, explain this to me. And I'm also happy. Yeah. I was really happy to see that, like. He was so concerned about the doctor's health. Yeah. And when the doctor is in the Matrix, he's so concerned. He's constantly wanting to pull him out of it. Um, Not because of anything with the machine or because he's just concerned that something bad will happen to him. And he doesn't want that to happen because he, the doctor's innocent. Yeah. Or, and even when, like, you know, uh, Engin goes to cut the power and he's like, you know, for fuck's sake, man he's alive they're dead yeah you know yeah like and that's like as important as the matrix is yeah. to time lord you know record keeping and time lord infrastructure that's a pretty fucking ballsy statement to stand by mm. you know yeah um and also as well like you know he unknowing you know he didn't know the lethality of it but he he takes a bullet for the doctor yeah. so there's one thing no, about like, the two I, of them though that I'm like, mm-hmm. fucking really? The two of them just let the master leave. Yeah. That is, yeah, that is, that, that, I think that this was, was badly filmed. <laughs> I think it's the one piece of the story I think it was just badly filmed. 
It's like you slowly, mm. like you have, oh, what the fuck is this random grandfather clock that wasn't here before? This is fucking weird. Mm. And then you sort of see the master and like, the master, should we try and stop him? The man who nearly killed everybody? No, we'll just let him leave. The two of them out in the universe. Sure. Fuck it. <laughs> Actually, that raises kind of a point there. Um, so we see the grandfather clock three times mm. before the master gets into it. We see it once um, in the first episode after like the doctor lands in the, mm. the Time Lord Museum, whatever. We see it the second time when it's part of the panning shot at the very end mm. when uh, the doctor and the two lads walk down. And then the doctor looks at it specifically. Mm. Right? Now, do you remember like the talks that we had about, you know, Terror of the Autons? Mm. Where like the doctor kind of looks as if you know that ah oh, you got away you you scamp and it's mm. like yeah despite the fact that he just had a man fucking die and you don't seem to be terribly fucking cut up about it like do we think that's kind of a repeat here because like he said like yo we don't know if the master could be dead and then it's like you're suspicious of this fucking grandfather clock which to be fair why would a grandfather clock be in yeah that's not this the museum? comedian circus is meant to help it blend in um. Yeah. I did kind of think that for a while. And I was like, why isn't he bringing their attention to it? But then, on the other hand, he hasn't been back to Gallifrey for hundreds of years, potentially, at this point. Maybe he just mm-hmm. recognized it was our Tardis and he just thought it was a bit weird. Do you know? Mm-hmm. We're cool. Yeah. Whatever. Um, I wasn't as cognizant of that reaction as I was at the end of Autons. Or Yeah. Yeah. Was it Autons? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it was Autons. I got Autons and Android. But yeah, no, I good all the time. <laughs> but I but I do agree, uh like the sort of like, ah well look, there they go. It's like this universe isn't big enough for the bullshit of like maybe well, you know, prevented so one of them that. from leaving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Idiot. Or like maybe it's a maybe it's the whole thing. Just so long as they fight off this fucking planet, you know. Mm. Speaking of the master, though, on to mm-hmm. our villains. So we have Chancellor Goth and the Master. Do you Goth first or Goth? As you I think so. Him? I yeah. Look, leave my accent alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, in my head, Canon, mm. this is the same. The reason that he's helping the master is because he didn't like the fact that the doctor had a rant at him at the end of the war games, because you know he said this is Bernard Hoswell and Bernard Hoswell played one of those sentencing time lords, mm. so that's my head canon. Okay. Um, <laughs> he started off seemingly being like, like the type of person that might be like you'd assume would be like the companion slash prominent character in favor of the doctor because you know they were both Pridonians and he seemed to have an interest in the old type 40 TARDIS and but that really quickly goes out the window <laughs> it's like his greed in his uh, like in the sense of like you know nope yes we killed fucking straight away but we have we have a, a code fuck the code it's like this man needs to this man needs to be trialed and killed uh it's like okay cool you're kind of a douchebag um and okay yes he, you can argue that he is manipulated by the master mm. into doing these actions, but it's like 
his pride and his greed at being fucking not named successor is what made him offer a hand to the master in the first place. So it's like, no, he because of that, he got what he deserved as far as I'm concerned. I think he's an asshole, right? Just putting that out there, right? I think he's an asshole. Yeah. However, mm. I, am, I have so many weird sort of thoughts about him. First of all, I really want to know why the president was not going to select him as his replacement. Because the president says, oh, mm. people are going to be surprised mm-hmm. of what names he mentions. So, clearly, like, when Goff says himself, he knew. The president had told him, you're not going to be my replacement. Mm-hmm. What did the president know that the other Time Lords didn't? Because the other Time Lords are so convinced that obviously it was going to be Goff. None of them even run against him. It was it's such a given mm-hmm. thing. And he himself is so completely full of himself that before I even had a chance to think about what's happening, he makes comments implying that he knows he'll be the next president. I was like, okay, the time lord, the other time lords in the council clearly trust him a lot. They have great faith in him. You know, even um, Barossa says, like, well, obviously it was going to be like, duh, like the whole public. What the fuck did the president know about this guy that nobody else did? Like, I, I'm trying to come up with, and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator. But it's like mm. um, Emperor Marcus Aurelius. He's like he's dying essentially, and he expects his like his son Commodus, who you know that's and it's the Commodus from the Reardon verse. Um, he expects to be made emperor next, but instead he gives he says like the the emperor the empire will be handed over to Maximus to make it back into a republic again. Mm. I say like, because you're not fit to be emperor. You you do not have the mentality or the capacity f- to be what an emperor needs to be. Maybe it's as simple as that. Why is it weird? I don't like, think it's all anything of the dark... other council seem to be a hundred percent behind him, or they think it's a given thing. Just so what did the president know that mm. none of the rest of them knew? Because mm. like you know, it'd be one thing if they're like, oh yeah, it'll probably be goth. Like mm. of course it is, but like yeah. once it's open, it's open season. Like, no one else invokes article 17 no one else tries to run Hmm. he's the only person in the running and i'm like Mm -hmm. what the what sort of shitty stuff were you talking to the president about before um i would also love to know exactly why he teamed up with him because he says like the master promised him power the master promised him that he would be president because he knew the president wasn't going to wasn't going to name him fine but like In, is he stupid? Is that the problem? Because like, oh yeah, you know, if you help me get back to Gallifrey, I will make sure that you're named president and you have more power than you could ever possibly imagine. Why would the master who got knows who he is? Why would you agree to do that with that person in particular? And like, I wonder like, was there any hypnotic suggestion from the master? And if so, how much? Um, well. Because it's like, it seems like a really stupid choice to make. To like Of all the people you could pair up with for this task, to pair up with him. Yeah. And the whole idea of bringing the doctor into it and all this kind of stuff. It's like, what the fuck were you doing, dude? 
So there is an element of hypnotic suggestion because I think God himself says that he was mentally ins- no, that could just be him mm. trying to mitigate as much possible damage yeah, backpedal his legacy. But if you think about it, like God's hearing everything he wants from someone that he thinks that he actually has power over because at that stage, like you know, the master the master's in a lot of pain, he's at death's doorstep. Like, he's weak, he's frail, he's, you know, he's no physical threat, nor is he a political threat, because he's persona non grata, he's a renegade, he's a criminal. Mm. So, maybe in God's mind, he stands to gain everything from it, and that greed and his pride allows the master to, like, sink the claws into him a lot more. Mm. I will say, though, God's viciousness in the Matrix is quite terrifying. Mm. It's... It's really, it's really unsettling, and I think the fact that he's wearing like the black fucking mask mm. over his entire head, it, it's, it's his vo- Bernard Horsfall does a really good voice with just does a really good job with just voice acting to get across the maliciousness of Gott's ambition, mm. and then when it comes to the physicality side of things, mm. like when he finally rips off that mask and it's like that fight scene, it's like yeah, no, that's a pretty. It's a well choreographed fight scene between the two lads, because mm. it's not anything you know flashy. Like there isn't any Venusian Aikido or any that kind of shit. It's just a knockdown brawl between two very wounded men. I think while quite vicious and visceral, I think it's probably one of the best fight scenes we've had in terms of choreography mm. and execution. And very difficult. Like that water was really cold, and they were in there for ages. It's probably one of the best ones since, um, oh, like, I think, like, the one from an unearthly child is the one that we probably rank mm. pretty close to the top. Yeah. Uh, we would have loved to have seen Tagana versus Marco Polo mm. because we know that Warris also choreographed that one, but unfortunately that's lost, mm. supposedly. Mm. There's rumours, but supposedly lost. Um, John's early ones, I think, were quite good, but then... You know, his back started going at him, so Terry took a lot of the the bumps. Yeah. But no, this was a really, really good one. Mm. Because again, it's just as I said, it's two wounded men having a down in the mud fight. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And then we have the master. Ooh. Dude, what happened to your face? <laughs> <laughs> I actually when I was watching this I almost was thinking that it's actually because they don't make it expressly clear in the show mm-hmm. if this is meant to be the Delgado master or if it's meant to be a different incarnation given how Roger died it seems a little bit disrespectful that the next time we see the master this is what he looks like mm. it's just me Yeah, that sort of no, I, I I hadn't really th- I hadn't really thought about that to be honest. No, you one one second, right? I need to. I'm gonna go. Can you do me a favor? Mm. Go back to your trivia notes for either the writer or the director of uh, this, mm-hmm. because I think you said something about frontier and space. Uh, so David reshot the ending because he was doing mm. Planet of the Daleks. Okay, fair enough. No, because I think you said an earlier trivia point where 
Frontier was meant to have the master taken out or the master was to be put into like this is this the last we'll see of the master type scenario because they assumed him to be dead so maybe they were pulling off that initial story point maybe but then again but then again as you say given the fact that Roger died and in the way that he died maybe they should have done it a slight bit differently Hmm. um because um I'm not going to say when but a version of the, this master appears again slightly different prosthetics and makeup that I think your point there will that version will make you feel more uncomfortable than this version oh, great yeah thanks yeah yeah um, <laughs> no. but yeah I think um I know Bob is very much and, and Philip very much really gets scared the little fuckers um, I think it was unnecessary to go as far as they did. Um, but that's just a personal preference thing, I think, on the aesthetic that they decided to go with the character. Um, I do this as another example, though, of the Master adding something to his plan that makes no fucking sense. Why bring the Doctor into any of this? He has defeated you at every possible moment. Why, when you're trying to get this amazing... Why would you even risk it? Like, other than because oh, we need like, to have like, a story. Why even risk bringing that man here? Never mind orchestrating for him to be there. It's like why? But, but the doctor, but the, the doctor calls it out. He says, like, the master's hatred is his greatest weakness. It's his hatred of the doctor was like, and this is this is the complete true line mm-hmm. of the master. Now we're we're now into a scenario where I can actually apply that to to a different incarnation of the character. He hates the Doctor so much that he does not see the pitfalls of his plans. Much the same way that Roger's master mm. never saw the pitfalls of teaming up with these superior fucking species that also wanted the same thing that he wanted. It's but like, also, dude, like, you're going to get shafted every fucking time. I don't. Personally speaking, I don't find this consistent with Delgado, Delgado's master. You know, his hatred is, you know, controls over everything. Yeah, his hatred of constantly trying to get the doctor to work with him on a project. I'm being shocked when the doctor says no. <laughs> like, Delgado's master didn't hate the doctor. Quite the contrary, he kept trying to bring him over to his side. Like, bear in mind that there was meant to be this sort of like brotherly relationship between the two of them. Mm. And it's like, I don't get that here. Here, he's a complete fucking psycho. And it's like, well, to be fair, there there was there was times like you know, okay, yeah, there was the element of come over to my side, but. Don't forget, there were multiple times where he actively tried to kill the Doctor. True, but it was never (laughs) hatred. It was never like this whole thing of like, oh, I don't care what else I do so long as the Doctor dies. Oh, yeah. That isn't the thing. Hatred is what drives the master. No, it's the search for power is what drives him the most. And his like possibly, you know, man crush on the Doctor is one thing, but like <laughs> hatred, so, I think is a strong term. Did, well, you know, like you, you get turned, you get spurned enough times, you know, like it becomes. Um, 
maybe they did go a small bit too Skeletor on this just because he looked it. Mm. But like, I think within the context of the story, it's, I don't know if I'd agree with you because like, okay, this is the master at death's door. Okay. We're told death's door. We're, we're okay. We're told that he's at death's door. Right. Mm. And like, if you think back to all these times, which you raised the point, yeah, he wanted the doctor to side with him. And it's like, you're, if you're at death's door and your mind just keeps ticking over, if only he had fucking sided with me, if only we had done this together. It's like, you know, that stupid motherfucker. It's like, at that point in time, it does become flat out hatred. Now, his, he did have the continual quest for power. Absolutely. That was his key driving point. But there was also this level of aggression that maybe yeah hatred they just conflated hatred and anger at the or hatred and aggression to be the same thing Mm. they conflated the two things to be together but i think yeah okay the dialogue while saying has always been his greatest weakness i don't know if i necessarily agree with that but i do agree that his anger has always been a weakness for him oh yeah his anger has been a yeah. weakness. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and I think, you know, we've called him out on teaming up with superior being after superior, which is why I have to call him out on why bring the doctor into the situation. You total. Isn't it better to gain all the power in the universe and then go hunt the fucker down and kill him? <laughs> but see, again, it's the, it's the conceit of the master to think that he is absolutely, he's onto an absolute winner here. Nothing can fail. And his ascension or his, you know, resurrection will be at the expense of the Doctor's downfall. You know, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I will, think I will, if we can call him out for repeatedly teaming up with people who always stab him in the back, I'm like, hmm. we can also call him out for a really bad fucking plan. Oh, I'm not saying it was a genius <laughs> plan. It it really wasn't. You know, it's but it's within keeping of his that character's stupidity. Hmm. Um, but two other things I have to say. One, this was a really sinister portrayal of the master. I think skeletal feature aside, mm. I think like have him working from the shadows really, really felt good. And two, Peter Pratt did a fantastic job, like getting across like the, cause it did, it's not like we don't see anything of his face. No. This is entirely a, a mask-based thing. We don't see any of his own features moving or anything like that. But he does a great job of getting across the pain and the desperation that the Master is feeling. Mm. I agree. I, th- I think it's a really good performance by him. And mm-hmm. I think that with the mask he had, because you can barely see his mouth moving. It's a very restrictive mm. mask. Mm-hmm. And we don't see his own eyes or anything. And his body no. is hes in a big cloak thing. So you can't really get much body mm-hmm. language off of him either. But the voice is very effective. Mm. Um, particularly yeah. when the Matrix fight is happening. Um, yeah. I think his voice is incredibly effective there. So... Um, we'll come to the overall. Mm-hmm. 
I forgot what we were going to discuss there for a second. <laughs> uh, so this is the overall section where myself and Trish will each give a score out of five for the story. So in keeping with our newly formed tradition, <laughs> I said the socials at the start, so I shall go first. <laughs> um, although technically speaking, I went first last week, but that was because it was a Sarah Jane episode. Yeah. yeah. So. That was a one-off. So no, keep no. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, I love the depiction of the Citadel, the idea of the different factions within it. As you said, it's very Hogwarts before Hogwarts, mm. you know? Uh, but I, I love that idea of, like, this... Because it, it's something that we don't really see a whole lot of, or at least really expanded in science fiction that has, like bureaucracy mm. like we don't see these rival factions it's it's done in star trek with the klingon empire mm. you know with the, the, the various houses we don't really see it so much in the federation mm. like you know we don't really see a, no we don't see like this like these rival groupings within it um and then like we get a small tease of it within the original star wars trilogy you know with the like, okay yeah the senate mm. but obviously senate's have different factions um so here, it's actually kind of cool to see it being done, you know, which, like, ah, oh, yes, the um, these ones are very popular, and these ones are known for to have these specific types of traits. I like that. Um, it was great to see the Doctor um, there as, like, our guidepost, because we get a bit more understanding as to why he left. Mm. Like, we can, we can see that, yeah, from Hartnell to, to Tom, we've seen that, yeah, this I can completely understand why these four versions of the character would all have wanted to get away from this weapon mm. thing. Um, I do think it's interesting to see him without the companion, but like you, I'm not sure if I can imagine it being long term. Um, I do. Why I would have liked to have seen a companion in the story is because we'd be in, we'd be discussing an aspect of the Doctor's civilization that we probably haven't seen before and that's like maybe their attitudes towards other species mm. so like time lord racism essentially you know would they be constantly belittling the companion that was with well, in this case it would be sarah jane mm. but like you'll put any companion into that scenario you know like what would they have been like to them um and also we'd be having a few extra prison break sequences <laughs> um the things i didn't like about the story uh were well, it was great bringing the master back into it. Nothing has really changed about that character. He, like the the master, is constantly complicating what are otherwise simple, effective plans. Mm. It's like if you if you if you stop relying on partnerships, just have lackeys. That's all it is. You you stop being the equal partner and be the actual fucking boss for once in your life. Be your title. Mm. <laughs> Uh, you might be a lot more effective and we would have probably stopped talking about this show 20 stories ago because <laughs> you would have fucking finally won um, yeah so like, that is like a weakness the in relation to the as we talked about like the visceralness and the intensity uh, I no, I liked it I did uh, I will admit that um, so I wouldn't Personally, I don't really deduct anything from it. While it is something that's I don't want to see entirely 
ha- you know, I don't want to see it happen often. Mm. Seeing these different facets of the Doctor from time to time in these different scenarios, I think it's cool. But that doesn't necessarily mean I want to see it every single week. Um, so I'm giving the story a four out of five. Okay. Not bad. Not bad at all. That, uh, I don't think you went this high. No, I did not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like when you were like, I think I know that tone. I know the tone of that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I've been bouncing around between two scores. Now, I'm not far off from you, but I've been bouncing around between two scores. So let me let me talk through okay. my thoughts first. First of all, The Matrix before yeah. The Matrix. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no bullet time, though. No. No. Um, I agree with Goth on one thing and one thing alone. Article 17 is silly. Someone on trial should not be allowed to, apropos of absolutely fucking nothing, invoke Article 17 as a way to forestall a trial. Now, in this case, the trial was being rushed and it was unjust and whatever. But that shouldn't be a thing that's allowed to happen. Mm. I think the situation where it would arise is probably quite slim. But once every hundred years, they may need to have an election. That shouldn't be an option that people have. <laughs> yeah. Um, to be honest, I'm a bit conflicted about this story as a whole. There's bits that I don't like. There's questions that I'm just like, what the fuck? And, but then there's bits that I do like as well. So I didn't really like the doctor on his own. And... For me, it kind of felt like this story was written with a companion and they just took the companion away and just left the dialogue as is and the direction pretty much as is. Like, the only reason why Engen knows nothing about his own history is because the Doctor needs to tell us what it is and there's no companion there to explain it to. Yeah. Which makes Engen look like a fucking idiot. Who doesn't Mm. know his own history? Um, him talking to himself at the beginning it's not the same as the way he has spoken to himself either in the past on scenes on his own or like I said the way particularly Hartnell comes to mind him muttering to himself it's Mm. just not the same and for me it doesn't work but it is only one story to your point so you know we'll see um the viciousness in this story and the visceralness of it for me comes from absolutely fucking nowhere. Like I said, the closest thing we got to it was um, uh, Brain of Morbius. Brain of Morbius. Which, while yes, visceral, was also quick, relatively speaking. And it was mm-hmm. one scene. Mm-hmm. This is an entire fucking episode. The entirety of episode three is this incredibly visceral Rambo-like storytelling. And personally, I found it a bit off-putting. I know people sort of have criticised the fact that, like, oh, yeah, someone gets shot in Doctor Who, you don't see any blood, you know, they maybe hold their arm, but you don't actually see anything and whatever. And, yeah, I get that, like, a bit more realism in the show, you know, like, are people coming from? For me, though, this is a level of realism that comes out of nowhere. Like, last week we had people being irradiated and crushed and falling from great heights. 
and it wasn't done with this level of realism and like they didn't zoom in on Carter's body down on the ground. You saw it from a height. Mm. Do you know? They didn't mm-hmm. show us your man fucking melting when he went into the radiation chamber. They didn't have your one make a noise when she was being crushed. Do you mm. know? Whereas for this, like the visceralness of it and that fight scene is just, for me, it was just a bit much. And I think it was unnecessary. And it seemed to be trying to do it for shock value, which isn't a good reason to do it. Does it work in this story? Yeah, but does it make me like the story more? No. Do you know? Um, also, a number of open mm. questions. Why didn't the president regenerate? Why didn't Goth regenerate? Why didn't Runcible regenerate? So, Why do does no one in this story fucking regenerate? So, this is the thing. I told you a long time ago, the war games, put a pin in this discussion. Because the war chief also didn't regenerate. Why do, like, they make a point that yeah. you get 12 regenerate. Why do none of these fuckers regenerate? <laughs> so, this, I don't, okay, I honestly can't remember if this is going to be answered within the confines of Classic mm. Who. However, I was reminded, because of the news today, I watched some clips. And Ten explains to Wilf, who is Bernard mm. Cribbins' character, that you can still die before regeneration kicks in. Yeah. Okay. But for that to happen yeah. to everybody. No, but, <laughs> yeah. No, this is the this is the thing, right? Where we've seen, okay, we we've seen three regenerations happen. Mm. Okay. We've seen one from old age. Mm. One forced. Mm. And one where technically the doctor had died, but Choji had to kickstart the regeneration. Also, we saw Choji's regeneration. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'll talk about it from the mm. doctor. But again, old age. Mm. Old age. The war chief, Runcible, uh, Goth, and um, the president all died from the extreme. Sorry, like, you know, the president was shot. Runcible was fucking impaled on a spike. Um,. Uh, Hildred obviously is fucking tissue compressed mm. so ugh, that was terrifying and then got like well yeah technically I suppose he should have been able to regenerate he was still connected to the matrix at the time that his wounds were taking effect so maybe it's like if there's too much damage to the body you can't regenerate I don't know yeah I don't for me it's like a story that goes through so much lengths to explain the regeneration cycle and whatever to have a story where no one regenerates. Partic- yeah. And particularly with Goth, actually, because the president is interesting because that means that they have weapons that if you shoot another mm. Time Lord, they won't regenerate. Mm-hmm. That's fucking freaky in their society when you think about it. Mm-hmm. A one-shot permakill in a society of people who are yeah. meant to regenerate and live long lives. That's fucked up. Mm-hmm. Goth was disconnected from the machine when he was dying. He knew he was dying. So it's not like it came out of fucking nowhere. <laughs> um, mm-hmm, Runcible, yeah. maybe, because he got stabbed and the knife was still in his back. Mm-hmm. Him, I'll give a pass. The knife was still in his back. But the other two, I'm like, okay. And then 
Um, Barossa says later, like, so many people died. I'm like, did they die from falling rubble? Did they die by falling in a big giant hole? Again, did anyone fucking regenerate on this planet in the last 24 hours? <laughs> it, it just it, it struck me as odd. I was expecting to see people regenerating. You know, because I, I really or loved it. was a bit with Runcible where I actually loved it, where Runcible recognized the doctor. Even though the mm. doctor, he's like, have you had a facelift? So like, he's like, yeah. have you he's like, yeah, I have a few times, actually. I was like, it's cool how they recognized each other. I was like, that, that's actually really cool. I actually really like that. But I was like, but then why don't, why don't we have more people regenerate? And also then, like like I said, with the whole companion thing, the Time Wars don't know their own fucking history. And how does the Master know? Yeah, and how does no. the Doctor figure it out if these people can't? So those bits bothered me. What I did like, though, I do think the story as a whole is incredibly interesting. The idea of the Matrix mm. and the mental battles is great. It's such a nice sort of step up from the um, Brain of Morbius mental battle. You know, yeah. like that was clearly like the Rodshaw dirty version. Like this was clearly what you know, yeah, what, what they should have been doing in that, uh, which is great. Mm. Um, the introduction of the idea of like predestination and Time Lords maybe being able to look into their own personal futures or whatever, or like the Matrix being able to predict the future, very very interesting. Also mm. ties into a lot of fan fiction I've read around why the Doctor of Sarah Jane behind. Tough point. Um. And the whole idea of Time Lord history is very interesting. A bit of an info dump. Bob really trying to make sure that like he is the one who wrote the book on all of this. You know, bear in mind, mm. Bob also wrote The Time Warrior, which I believe is where Gallifrey is first mentioned. So clearly this is Bob's yeah. baby. Um, and you can't deny the production was well done. Like I, said, I, agree, I disagree with some of the production choices in terms of realism and visceralness or whatever. But you can't say the production wasn't well done. No. Yeah, absolutely. And the acting, like I said, is wrong. So for me, this, like, you know, we've, we've said it before, I've never seen this story. I've seen, like, I've seen the clip where the doctor shoots, quote unquote, shoots the present. I've seen that bit, because <laughs> it's it's in clips, hmm. you know, shows all the time. But I hadn't seen anything else of it. It was not what I was expecting. And I've sort of been pondering all day, did I actually enjoy it? <laughs> um, and at one point today, I said, no, I don't think I did. <laughs> but now that we've discussed it and I've thought about it a bit more, I was sort of tempted to go down the line of a three earlier on. I was like, do you know what? There are bits mm. that I don't like, but they're very personal to me. Um, mm-hmm. and like I said the production was great the idea is good the acting was fabulous whatever um, but there's a couple of things that I can't get past so I've gone with 3.5 it's not too far below yours um, and I know mm-hmm. a lot of people a lot of people really like this story um, mm-hmm. I watched the behind the sofa about this and they were saying this is this is a story that gets you know fans talk about this story a lot because of the lore and because of all the other stuff and whatever um, mm. but for me, I'm like, yeah, it's a, it's a three point five. It's it's above average. So, I have a question for yeah. you now, right? Because we have reviewed, like, we we have had a couple of above average stories before, mm. right? Uh, primarily kind of during the early days of Hartnell. Mm. 
But you like rewatching those stories uh, again because of the Eden and Barbara side mm. of things, and like their chemistry with Hartnell. Do you think you would watch this story again, or would you skim it for parts you liked? I would probably skim it, and I would probably skip episode three entirely. Yeah, I'd probably skim it. I liked Castellan. I liked Engen. I liked them together. I liked them with the Doctor. I liked the investigation part of the story. I liked all that part. I mm. liked the idea of the mind battle but pretty much episode three i would i would skip the majority of it hmm. which like, i'm looking back at previous stories like i gave mask a 3.25 i would rewatch mask and and i give seeds a three i would rewatch both of these and android before i'd rewatch this one that's the largely the Sarah Jane influence causing me to rewatch those. Yeah. Um, which this story so, doesn't uh, have. <laughs> tra- yeah. So track track it back to other stories you've given a similar score to that aren't Sarah okay, Jane. Okay, so related. let's go pre Sarah Jane. So uh, the last thing I gave it three point five. I haven't given it three point five in a while, other than in Sarah Jane stories. Uh, the last three point five I gave was Terror of the Autons. Would you watch Terror before you'd watch this? Probably because it has the brig. <laughs> yeah, I, pro- I probably would watch Terror before I rewatch this. Um, so, yeah. And to be honest, this is really like, you know, we, we've talked about before how Tom Baker was always my favorite doctor. And then we rewatched mm-hmm. all of Hartnell and he just, thump, like, went. <laughs> Yeah, shooting up. Yeah, and you know, we were wondering once we get past Sarah Jane, would Tom still be my favorite? And mm. this story, on its own, in isolation, puts a huge question mark on that. But yeah. it is one story in isolation, mm-hmm. and I haven't seen any of his other stories, bar one. Which is the Invisible Enemy, and that was, I watched that story. Eleven years ago, I don't even remember it. I remember mm. it introduced K nine. That's about it. <laughs> Which is the only reason why I watched it because it came in the same box as K nine and Company. It's the only reason why I watched it. Yep. Um. So I don't. I think. I think this is interesting. Um. I was really hoping to like love this story, and I was kind of surprised. I, I was kind mm. of watching it last night, kind of being like. Okay. Okay. I need Sarah Jane back. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, it's one story in isolation. And next week, we're mm. going to have another story with Tom. And we'll see if that yep. changes anything on my current, as of the last 24 hours, <laughs> feeling on the fourth doctor. <laughs> so, buddy, what do we have next week? Next week, we have the Doctor coming face-to-face with a familiar face in The Face of Evil. Face it, that was a lot of faces. Yep. (laughs) I will face that fact. (laughs) Till then, everybody. Bye. Bye.